The scripture reading this morning will be from James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. In the Pew Bible before you, you will find that on page 1073. That is James chapter 3, verse 13 through 18, on page 1073 in the Pew Bible. And I will be reading from the New American Standard. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and self-ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. The wisdom is not, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. For where jealousy and self-ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed of whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Have you ever had one of those moments where you look back on something that took place in your life and you think about a decision you made or a statement that you've made and you think, you know, that seemed like a good idea at the time, but looking back, I don't think that was such a good idea. It may be that your children discover a photo album or a yearbook that shows maybe the way that you dressed when you were in college or a certain hairstyle you had and you look at that and you say, you know, that really seemed like a good idea at the time, but, but looking back, I'm not sure about that. It makes you wonder 20 or 30 years down the road, if we look back at some of those pictures, we might wonder, I don't know if that was such a good idea. It's interesting because our history really is filled with examples of ideas that might have seemed good at the time, but turned out not to be a success. In fact, it's been about 50 years ago that the Ford Edsel was introduced, the experimental car or the e-car as they called it. And they put years of research into this automobile. And they were going to have all the latest technological innovations. And it was going to be the height of the the auto manufacturing industry. This was going to be the premier automobile. In fact, it, it premiered, it made its debut with a highly rated television show, the Ford Edsel Show came on television. There were not many debuts in in the history of automaking have have been quite as large, quite as eye-catching, and yet just four years down the road, they produced the last Ford Edsel. It never really took off for a variety of reasons, and now the name is really synonymous uh, with one of the biggest missteps that you think of in company history, the history of large companies. It's sort of infamous for its debut and then for the time uh, that it was out. And it was only a few decades later, there was another major American company that was really looking for a shot in the arm. And I know from talking to several in our men's leadership class that just a few weeks ago, they discussed New Coke, the debut that took place a couple of decades ago 
where Pepsi was really gaining on Coke and in sales, and so they decided to do something new. They brought a new CEO in. He decided he was going to have a debut of new Coke, a new formula. And it was interesting because it really was a success in the first few weeks, but there was an outspoken group that really rallied against it. They published articles in the paper, and so only three months after its debut, Coke decided that wasn't such a good idea. They went back to the original formula. To give you a sense of how newsworthy this was, Peter Jennings interrupted the nightly news just to report the breaking developments that Coca-Cola was returning to its original recipe. I mean, this was serious business. And so we think about some of these famous and maybe a better word is infamous flops in advertising and marketing history. It's humorous to look back on. It's not humorous if you were an executive that was running one of those companies at the time. But it's funny for us to look back and to see some of the mistakes that seemed like such a good idea. The research indicated this was such a good idea. Focus groups thought this was a great development. But it didn't work out that way. And on a more personal level, aren't there times in our lives where we think back on things that we've done Maybe it's the joke that we told that we thought would be really funny, but it ended up hurting someone's feelings. And as we look back, we realize that wasn't such a good idea. Maybe it's the time at work where we just glossed over the truth a little bit, and it didn't really make that much of a difference. But as we look back, we can't help but feel guilty because we know we were dishonest. We need, as we face these challenges in life, we need wisdom. We need the wisdom when it comes to those decisions to be able to make a choice that we won't look back on and regret. I don't know about you, but I don't think we ever reach the point where we have enough wisdom. I'm always looking for wisdom. And if if you'll notice, wisdom isn't really the same as knowledge. You and I can probably think of several people that are the wisest people we know, but wouldn't have what the world refers to as a formal education or maybe a lot of knowledge that you gain from books. They have a wisdom that comes from living. And so this morning, we're going to look at the words of James as he encourages us to have wisdom and teaches us how to develop that in our lives. And no matter where we are in life, we can always use more wisdom. I'd invite you, if you haven't already, to turn your Bibles to James chapter 3. We'll be spending most of our time there this morning. And while you're turning there, let me let you know how thrilled we are to have you here, especially if you're visiting with us. But we know what it takes to not only set your alarm to come and visit a worship service, but also to set it an hour earlier on a weekend like this one. And so we're thankful for you being here. We know that wisdom is important because we see all through Scripture the value God places on it. In fact, when Solomon is given an incredible opportunity by the Lord in 1 Kings chapter 3, in verse 5, the Lord comes to him and says, Ask for me whatever you want. Here is a, here is a blank check. Here is an opportunity Solomon has to make a decision. What would you do if you were given the opportunity to have anything that you wanted? And yet Solomon knows enough to understand he needs wisdom. And so in verse 9, he would say, Therefore give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. Solomon knew the importance of wisdom. And it's interesting because just a generation later, when Solomon's son Rehoboam comes to power, you remember there was a situation that called for wisdom on Rehoboam's part. The people came to Rehoboam wondering if he was going to tax them and treat them the same way that Solomon did. And if you'll remember, Rehoboam went to two groups of people. He went to one group that was the, made up of older advisors, and then he went to the group of the younger advisors that were more of his contemporaries and his friends. 
And he passed up on the wisdom that was available. He chose to go with the younger advisors. Because of that, eventually, there would be a split in the kingdom. Solomon understood the importance of wisdom. And we see in Rehoboam's actions that Rehoboam misses out on the riches available in wisdom. We also see that the Proverbs are constantly exalting wisdom. If you've been reading through in your daily Bible, you've noticed as we read just a bit of Proverbs every day, constantly the message is to gain wisdom. One of those passages is found in chapter 4, verses 5, and then also in verse 7, where the writer would say, get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. It doesn't get much clearer than that, does it? The importance placed on wisdom. And so as we look at the words of James in James chapter 3 that were read for us earlier, let's see what James has to say about wisdom. And James in, in these verses is going to answer two specific questions for us. So this morning we just want to find answers to two questions. The first question is, how do we know wisdom? How will we know wisdom when we see it? There are so many counterfeits out there. There are so many pieces of advice we can get from the world around us. How do we know godly wisdom? And then the second one is how will we show wisdom? How will we live it out? And so as we think of the words James writes, let's begin in verse 13. Where he says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. And then look at some of the characteristics he gives of earthly wisdom. If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but it is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Those are some serious terms to describe worldly wisdom. He writes, where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So if we're looking for the answer to our first question, how will I know God's wisdom, James really paints a very clear picture, very vivid, of what worldly wisdom is. And so as we think about this, just try to picture in your mind Someone that we think about maybe in society or maybe someone that you know that the world credits with being wise. Maybe a wise businessman, maybe someone who's known for cutting corners and maybe making some deals that aren't quite honest. And as we think about what our society values, see if you can find any elements of that worldly wisdom there. He uses phrases like bitter envy or bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, Boasting and, and the context here seems to indicate that this word means not only boasting, but boasting at the expense of someone else. We have phrases like untruth and even disorder that exist around those who promote worldly wisdom. And so if I'm on the lookout for what true wisdom is and someone gives me a piece of advice, I need to ask if any of these elements are present. In other words, if someone tells me, well, here's what you need to do. Make sure that whatever happens, that you get what's yours. That you get all the money that you can out of this deal. That you go for all the prestige that you can. Uh, That you try to get on someone's good side so that when promotions are handed out, they'll be looking to you. I need to ask myself, do I sense any bitter jealousy in there? Is there any selfish ambition in that motive? We don't have to look very far in the Old Testament to see examples of worldly wisdom. 
You may remember in Genesis chapter 11, after God has saved Noah and his family through the ark, and they've come through the flood, and then God's command was to go out and was to, was to spread across the earth and to populate it, and yet the people decide they don't want to do that. In fact, in Genesis 11, we see that they want to do three different things. They want to build for themselves a city, they want to make a name for themselves, and they want to build a tower stretching out into the heavens. Otherwise, they would be scattered over the earth. Can you hear the boasting in those goals? Let's build ourselves a city. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's build a tower so great that no one will ever be able to miss it and that we'll never be scattered because we'll always know where this big city is, where we've made our name. If I'm looking through the eyes of worldly wisdom, that might sound like a pretty good idea. But not if I'm thinking with godly wisdom and thinking about the command that God had already given them. We might look even in the New Testament in one of Jesus' parables. As he describes a rich individual who had had a good year, when it came time to do the books, when the harvest was in, he realized he had prospered. In fact, his crops were so great that he didn't even have barns that could contain them all. So he wanted to tear those down and to build bigger barns. And the purpose of building those bigger barns wasn't to help anyone else. It wasn't to spread his wealth or to spread his riches. It was so that he could eat, drink, and be merry. Can you hear the selfish ambition in those goals? Can you see where, where that worldly wisdom might say, that's a great idea. Make sure that you've got plenty. Make sure that you, you hoard everything together and you don't have to worry about a thing. Never giving a concern about the people around you. Worldly wisdom is painted very clearly and godly wisdom is as well. James would use words to describe godly wisdom like pure and peaceable and gentle, even uh, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. It's a, a wisdom that's impartial, a wisdom that's sincere. Can't you tell the difference between this and that worldly wisdom? Think for just a moment about one of the wisest people that you know. It might be a family member that's given you some advice at important times in your life. It might be someone that you've grown up with as a friend. But think of that wise person. And don't some of these words describe the advice you get from that person? That's gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. If I'm looking for godly wisdom and someone gives me a piece of advice, I need to see if any of these elements are present. Because if they are, likely I'm dealing with a wisdom that isn't from the earth, that's from above. And there are some harsh words used to describe the wisdom from the earth. And one of those is translated demonic, even devilish in some passages. Literally, of the devil, of Satan. There are some elements to earthly wisdom that Satan would love for us to embrace. But if I'm looking for godly wisdom, I need to be looking for individuals like the author of this book. As an example of godly wisdom... Let's consider James for just a moment. If you would turn over to Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, we face a very interesting situation for the early church. You may remember that beginning with Cornelius, Peter was used by God to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. And so now that the gospel message is not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, there's a problem that arises. And it's a problem that we see even reflected in some of the letters that we have in our New Testament. The problem is that for a group that have grown up in the Jewish faith, they become Christians and then these Gentiles are coming in and they want to be members of the church as well. They're trying to decide, do we require of them the same things that we have undergone? Do we require a circumcision uh, that we have undergone? Do we require them to be, in other words, uh, under the law of Moses before they can become 
under the law of Christ? Now we know from what Paul would write to the Galatians and the Romans and even the Hebrews letter is, is really designed for those who have grown up in that tradition to understand Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. In fact, if I try to take Jesus and put elements of the old law with him, I'm saying that sacrifice isn't enough. And yet they're wrestling with this for the first time. And I want us to take a moment and just imagine the tensions that would have taken place in Acts chapter 15. We'll begin in verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. And we see it later on in verse 5. But some of the sects of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them, these Gentiles, and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. Did you notice the terms like debate and dissension that have been stirred up here? So just imagine the tension that would be present as you have the apostles and the elders. You have Peter and James and Paul and Barnabas. And then you have some of these that were of the Pharisees that had become Christians. Now we know from seeing the Pharisees deal with Jesus the respect that they had for the old law. The passion they had for keeping the law of Moses. Don't you know that some of that passion was still there? Don't you know they hadn't lost that? They had grown up their entire lives honoring the law of Moses. So if someone says it's no longer necessary, that would be a serious threat to what they had spent their lives understanding. Now we know, looking back on the writings of the New Testament, that the Old and the New Testament fit together. And that the New, the new is that new and better covenant, and we don't follow those old laws. But that was, this was new to those Pharisees, and so they're struggling with this. Now God is going to lead the group here making this decision. We see later on in this chapter that the Holy Spirit had a part in this decision-making process. But look at what James does. Peter gets up and he talks about what's happened between uh, the Gentiles and what God is doing. Paul and Barnabas stand up and speak. And then later on, we see James stand up in verse 13. After they had stopped speaking, James answered saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. James then goes on to quote the prophets and see how those prophecies are fulfilled. And look at what he says in verse 19. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Isn't that an example of godly wisdom? A wisdom that's open to reason? Taking what people are saying, laying that aside scripture and saying, does this match up with what scripture teaches? And when you come to a conclusion, making a decision. So when James writes to us about godly wisdom, he is writing from someone who has practiced that firsthand. And so as we answer that question, how will I know godly wisdom? James paints a very clear picture. But how will we show godly wisdom? Is something that's a little more challenging for us, isn't it? How do we live that out in our lives? How can I live a life where I won't look back as much on as many times and think I shouldn't have made that decision? How can I avoid some of those regrets? Well, we see in order to show godly wisdom, there are a few things that James mentions specifically. He tells us in verse 13 of chapter 3, we need to live meekly. Verse 18, that we need to show peace. And way back in chapter 1, he would say that if we need wisdom, we need to pray for it. So very quickly, I want us to think about these ways in which we show godly wisdom. Meekness is difficult for us to understand sometimes, isn't it? Meekness sounds so much like weakness. When we think about meek and the word weak, they sound so much alike, sometimes we associate them with each other. 
And yet the Greeks had an image, a definition for meekness that I think is very helpful. Power under control. And the word picture they would use to describe that is a wild horse that had been broken to where it was able to, for someone to ride it and control it. So you don't have a horse that's wild with power that's out of control, but a horse that can be reined in, that can have a bridle put to it, that can have someone on the saddle controlling that horse's movement. Meekness is power under control. You know, Jesus was meek. And again, sometimes we sing songs, uh, there's not a friend that's so meek and lowly. No, not one, as, as Jesus. Jesus meek and gentle, and yet that meekness isn't a weakness. It's a power that's under control. Imagine walking on the earth with the kinds of power and ability that Jesus had and then being faced by some of those harsh words from Pharisees. Wouldn't it be tempting just to snap right back with the display of power, just to put them in their place? Yet Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus performs miracles when signs are needed. Jesus cleanses the temple when money changers need to be driven out. He has that power, but it's under control. And so if I want to display wisdom, I don't throw my weight around just to make someone feel bad. I don't try to show people who's boss or show my power just because I have it to show off. I'm keeping that power under control. Choosing choosing the moments where I want to assert something into a situation. Choosing times where my wisdom is needed. And I try to keep that power under control. We also need to sow peace. It's fascinating in this passage to try to compare what James is saying here with what's said in the Beatitudes in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Meekness, blessed are the meek. Pure, blessed are the pure in heart. And here as we think about those who sow peace, we remember Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So it's important to sow peace. Even in the progression there of the elements, there was first purity and then there was peace. Haven't you known some people that may even have been right before? They might have had the right idea or the right position on a certain issue, but they just didn't handle it peacefully. Are you like me? Have you ever been one of those people before? They might have had the right idea, but just didn't handle it in a way that promoted peace. It's so important, especially as we continue to grow as a congregation, that we grow in peace, promoting peace with each other. Uh, doing actions that would engender that kind of peace. So if I have an objection to something or if I have a problem with you, I want to handle that in a way that promotes peace between us. I want to be honest, but I also want to be loving and make sure that, that I never lose sight of the importance of sowing peace. And the image there is of actively sowing peace, not just the absence of any conflict, but always working in ways that would promote peace with someone else. Lastly, here James tells us that we can pray for wisdom. In fact, in James chapter 1 and verse 5, if you want to flip over just a couple of chapters, James gets very specific as he talks about prayer. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Did you notice that there's no mystery whether or not our prayers will be answered when we pray for peace? It will be given to us. Now, we know there are times when we pray for things and our will isn't lined up with God's will and we don't receive the answer we want to our prayers. But here James is telling us if we pray for wisdom, we'll receive wisdom. I think that's because there's never a time in life where we don't need wisdom. There's never a point we reach where we say, this is all the wisdom I can handle. I don't need any more than this. God is telling us we need to be praying for wisdom because if we pray for it, we'll receive it. I want to 
issue a challenge to all of us as we've been thinking about wisdom this morning. I want to challenge every single one of us every day this week, beginning today, every day this week, let's pray for wisdom. Just in our our daily prayers, let's remember to pray for wisdom. How different do you think our life would be if we prayed for wisdom constantly? If we constantly wanted to grow in our wisdom? I heard a conversation described recently that a minister had with one of his heroes of faith. And when he asked that individual, what, is, what do you do that's your secret to success? It seems that everything you do succeeds spiritually. And that person didn't want to say too much about it. But finally, after he was pressed, he said, well, I think one of the things that has helped more than anything else is that when I was a child, I heard someone preach on the book of James about wisdom and about asking God for wisdom. And I began praying every day for wisdom. I don't know if I'm wise, but I can't help thinking I'm wiser than I would have been if I'd never prayed for it. Imagine the difference that can be made in our lives. Let's, let's remember to do that every day this week. Let's pray that God would give us wisdom. There's a story that's circulated for years, and sometimes it's attributed to Socrates, sometimes it's another philosopher. And whatever the origin, I think it provides for us the motivation that we'll need as we think about gaining wisdom in our lives. It tells of a young man who comes up and wants to study under Socrates. And Socrates takes a walk with him, walks towards the beach, and in fact, wades out in the water. And the student follows him, thinking there will be a lesson here that he can learn. And Socrates takes the student, and he plunges him under the water and holds him there for about 30 seconds. Now, the young man was taken off guard, and so he raises him up and he says, Well, what do you want from me? And he looks at Socrates, this master teacher, and he says, I want wisdom. And Socrates looks at him and plunges him back under the water again. This time he holds him there a little bit longer. And the young man starts to, his lungs start to burn, and he he starts to try to, to wrestle himself free. And then he brings this young man back up, and he says, what do you want from me? And the young man says, I want wisdom. Well, you probably know what happens. He gets thrown under the water again. And this time he's held for even longer until finally it feels like his lungs are going to explode. And then Socrates raises him up out of the water and he asks him, what do you want from me? And the young man says, I want to breathe. And he says, when you want wisdom as badly as you want to breathe, then you will find it. Now, it's an interesting story, but I think it illustrates the importance of motivation. I can read the passage here. I can think about what James tells me about a knowing wisdom when I see it, about showing it, but how badly do I want it? Do I want it badly enough to change my life? Because there's one wise decision that exists out there for every one of us. The wisest decision we could ever make. And that decision is to submit our lives to God's, to follow in the footsteps of Christ. And I have to ask myself, how badly do I want it? Do I want to live the Christian life as badly as I want the next breath of air, the next meal that I eat? How badly do I want to follow God? Have I made the wisest decision of all? As we think about wisdom and talk about wisdom, ultimately, unless we change our lives to live that wisdom out, it won't make much of a difference. And so as we come to the end of this Uh, lesson here this morning, we have the opportunity to make that wisest decision of all. You might be here this morning and you've never made that decision to become a Christian, to follow in the footsteps of Christ. You can begin a life growing in wisdom right now. 
or it may be that you've lived that life and for whatever reason, you haven't been acting very wisely. Can't we all relate to that? Can't we all relate to a time where we haven't been acting in wisdom and God gives us the chance to come back to him? The wisest decision any one of us can make is to submit our will to God's. Everyone has that opportunity as we stand and as we sing.